I'm preaching from Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 7, and going through chapter 64, verse 12. So, uh, you might want to shut this off and read that, um, rather than have me read it, because it takes too long on the recording for me to read it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the day you've given to us. We thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you that you have given to us all that we need for life and godliness. We give you praise and we give you thanks that you have been merciful to us who um, deserved nothing from you, but you have given us all things. And we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave his life for our sins. And we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. And our prayer is always that we would uh, yield to the Holy Spirit and bear the fruit that the Spirit works in us. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom now as we think of this passage, this, this passage of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. If there's one thing the 20th century church seems to have lost, it's prayer. In the early apostolic church, prayer seemed to be a common theme. Consider the following. In Acts 1, when the church needed to elect a new apostle, we read that they prayed. In Acts 3, we read that Peter and John kept the hours of prayer held in the temple. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John were released from the council, we read that they prayed, uh, and their prayer was an application of Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 6, after the first so-called deacons were elected, or were selected, I mean, we read, and after praying, they laid their hands upon them. In Acts chapter 12, after Herod had killed James, he arrested Peter and intended to put him to death as well. Then we read these words, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Again, in Acts 12, after Peter was miraculously released, we read, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Antioch, the Holy Spirit set them apart for missionary work. Before they left, we read these words. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands upon them, they sent them on their way. Acts 13, verse 3. And so we continue to read. Then we read the most astounding command Paul gives to the church, pray without ceasing. What exactly Paul means by this has been and will continue to be debated. One thing is clear, the church is to be a praying church. But how might we as a church implement this? So often our prayer is little more than praying for things we need we would like or for those who are sick all of which are perfectly legitimate after all the lord does encourage us to with these words humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt you in the proper time 
casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Well, I know that Peter's talking there about persecution, but the reality is God, God's always concerned about our anxieties. He's also concerned about our cares because he cares for us. However, the content of prayer is much more inclusive than our own needs. Also, prayer should occupy times outside of worship. For example, prayer meetings. By prayer meetings, I mean gathering for the purpose of praying and nothing else. Let's just say that we planned an hour of prayer on Wednesday. For what would we pray during that hour? Well, we are coming to the final chapters of Isaiah. In Isaiah 63, 7 through 64, 12, we get a glimpse of one possible hour of prayer and what that might involve. Notice three details. Recount God's mighty deeds, regret our rebellion, and request God to work. So these are the three points. Recount, regret, and request. First of all, then, recount. Chapter 63, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah recounts the steadfast love of the Lord. Often the word translated steadfast love is associated with God's covenant. For example, in Psalm 89, verses 1 to 4, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Notice that the same word appears again at the end of verse 7. God granted them his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Or some versions translate that word loving kindness. God visited his people Israel out of great compassion and steadfast love love that was predicated upon his covenant. Some people limit the covenant to the Sinai covenant, in this passage anyway they do. I personally believe that the covenants all flow from the covenantal well of God's promises to Abraham. However, Isaiah is clearly referring to the Exodus, for he refers to the angel of his presence, of which we read also in the Exodus account. We also read, In all their afflictions he was afflicted. Well, God identifies with the afflictions of his people. What they suffer, he suffers. He identifies with them. Was this not what Jesus did when he received the baptism of John? He was identifying with his people. Was this not also the case relative to Saul? Saul, or Paul as he came to be called, was persecuting the church. On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul persecuted the Christians, he was persecuting Christ. Do you understand that? Whatever people may do to us, you can be certain that they are doing it to Christ because he identifies with us and we are identified with him. In part, that's what it means to be in Christ and to be one body with Christ. Where he is, we are. 
What belongs to him belongs to us, and vice versa. Isaiah continues, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God redeemed his people from Egypt, which was a grand picture of his redeeming us from the slavery of sin. Yes, Egypt was a horrible taskmaster. It was hard to be enslaved to them. The reality, however, is that slavery to sin is far worse than any other slavery. Men may kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. Sin, however, by its very nature, is soul-destroying. That's why Jesus asks, What shall it profit a person if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Your soul is more valuable than anything else. To lose it means to lose it everlasting, it being removed from the, the love and, and presence, the glory presence of God, and only suffering only suffering in his presence with what you have done. In chapter 64, we read something like chapter 63, verses 7 through 9. Only in chapter 64, verses 1 to 4, the details specifically relate to the Exodus. Rending the heavens, mountains quaking, making his name known so that the nations might tremble at his presence, reflect similar imagery at the Exodus. Therefore, 63, 7-9, and 64, 1-4 are parallel passages. They refer to God's redeeming work. However, in chapter 64, verse 4, it ends with these sobering words, No eye has seen a God beside you, you who acts for those who wait for him. Isaiah seems to be asking, if, if you would only do what you once did, then, then things might be different. If you're looking at chapter 64. It, or maybe he's saying something like, Oh God, work your mighty deeds as you have done previously, then the people will return. Um, sometimes we, we think that way too. Many pastors teach that God continues to work as he did at the time of Christ. He is able to, that's for sure, but don't expect it. What God did in and through Christ were meant to be signs and wonders to lead people to Christ. So while God is is more than capable of doing what he did in Christ in miracles and wonders, we shouldn't expect him to do that. We are called to trust him based on his word, not on our experience. Well, God's redeeming work carried with it an expectation that his people would love him and be obedient. We read about this in the next section. However, it's good for us to give some thought to what one commentator said. Based on these verses, this commentator wrote, If we are the people of God, where is the character of God in our lives? That's a sobering question, isn't it? This was something that God expected of his people under the Mosaic Covenant, but he also expects that of us. Does he not? What else does he mean when he tells us, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And again we read, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, um, as the New Living Translation uh, translates it. So God saves his people so that they may become like him. Well, this leads us to the second detail, and that is regret. Regret may be the may not be the best word to describe lament, and lament is what the next section is about. Both in chapter sixty three and sixty four this comes up. Isaiah laments that the people rebelled. They grieved his holy spirit. They rebelled and God turned to be their enemy. And that's and that's what controls the verses that follow. They rebelled, and God turned to be their enemy. Isaiah remembers the days of Moses and his people, but they rebelled. He brought them up out of the Red Sea with, uh, with, with the shepherds of his flock, that is, the leaders and kings, but they rebelled, and he became their enemy. Where is he that put his Holy Spirit in their midst? Oh, they rebelled, and he therefore hides his face. He stood by Moses and worked wonders, but they rebelled, and he became their enemy. He divided the waters, but they rebelled and became their enemy. You can almost hear the prophet weeping. For all that God has done for his people, they rebelled. Therefore he became their enemy. In chapter 64, verses 5, five through 7, uh, Isaiah sets forth a parallel lament. Um, in 64.5, it sounds positive as it begins. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember your, you and your ways. Sounds like some of us, doesn't it? Here I am, Lord. I joyfully work righteousness. I remember your ways. Here I am, Lord. I have met many people like that. Many people. Many people pat themselves on the back for their accomplishments. Some pastors think that the church stands or falls because of them. I have heard, I built this ministry, or this is my church. I built it from a few families into the multitude that you now see. If you have never heard these kinds of things, then, well, thank God. But notice, right after Isaiah's words in 64, verse 7, he says, "There's well, in verse 7, I think he says it, <clears throat> Um, It's in verse 5. You meet him.
him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. But then he says, Behold. It's almost like Isaiah shouting, Behold. It's a it's a it's a contrast. You were angry and we sinned. We might better read, You were angry because we sinned. And notice, in our sin we have been a long time. Wow. We've been in our sin a long time. And so he asks, Shall we be saved? He describes the people as those who are unclean. Worse yet, their righteousness is as filthy as a filthy garment. It's a reference to a, a menstrual rag. Something unclean. They are like fading leaves, and their iniquities take them away like the wind. You can almost hear Psalm 1 being put in there, right? You can almost insert Psalm 1 in there. Psalm 1 reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates night, day, and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away, like dry leaves that are being blown away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Isaiah says, that's what they're like. They're like those wicked people. He also says that there is none, there is no one who calls upon the name of the Lord and no one who rouses himself to take hold of him. Isaiah is talking about prayer. No one was praying. No one was wrestling with God as did Jacob at Peniel. You remember that? Jacob wrestled all night with a heavenly visitor. We read this in Genesis 32, verses 22 to 30, if you want to turn there. Now he rose, that is, Jacob rose that same night, and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And then he, and then he, and, the, and he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had, all of his, all of his sheep. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, "Let me go, for the dawn is breaking." But he said, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." So he said, "So he said to him, What is your name?" And Jacob said. And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved.
Whether Isaiah had this story of Jacob in mind or not, I, I can't say. But as far as I know, it has been an image of prayer. Striving and wrestling with God is an image of prayer. And Isaiah said, there was no one who took hold of God, and no one calls on his name. This connection between taking hold and the name, we don't take hold of God anymore. People don't do that. We don't wrestle with God in prayer, do we? I think I do for some things, but not others. But what was the reason no one prayed? Why, Why didn't they pray? Well, he is quite clear people gave up. Instead of waiting on God, they turned elsewhere. God had hidden his face from them, and he made them uh, melt in the hands of their iniquities. Now, now please do not misunderstand. While God's face was turned away from them, he would have turned it toward them had they repented, but they didn't. Therefore, he gave them up to do what they wanted to do, which was sin. The description of melting in hands of their sins is apt. I mean, think of this. If you take a piece of nice chocolate and place it in your hands and just hold it, guess what? It makes a mess of your hands. Uh, when When we hold on to our sins, they mess up our lives. We become more and more soiled. It's just like that. It's just like we read in Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Isn't that sad? People have been redeemed by God. That's what Isaiah has recounted in two places in chapter 63 and 64. And now he's lamenting because now they're doing those things which are not proper. And because they no longer they no longer wanted to acknowledge God, they didn't trust Him, they didn't glorify Him, He gave them up to a depraved mind to do whatever they wanted to do, and it was sin. You know, there's only one time I have ever asked uh, the church to fast and pray. And uh, I did it on one Sunday. And the next day I received a phone call accusing me of acting in the flesh. Others said the same thing. I I never realized that fasting and praying was acting in the flesh. One time I got the opportunity to preach a devotional before lunch at the General Assembly. After I was done, I sat down. A man came up to me and said, That was a good Baptist sermon. I wasn't sure how to take that. I've had people question whether I was truly reformed. Maybe I, maybe I act like a Baptist when I encourage people to fasting and praying and when I preach. I don't know. And honestly, it doesn't matter. I stand in good stead with Isaiah who pointed out that his people's problem was that they did not pray. I don't think Isaiah was a Baptist. He lamented the fact and so should we. And that should teach us something, should it not? It's the people of God. Do we gather together to pray? Do we gather together to call upon the name of our God regarding the world situation, regarding the government, regarding regarding other things in our lives? Do we gather together and, to, and lament our own sins before the Lord and say, you know, God forgive us and 
Do we do those kinds of things? Are we afraid to do those kinds of things? Or, or are we embarrassed by that? Or do we think that it's operating in the flesh? I pray that we don't. Well, that leads us then to the final point. Request. So we've seen recount, regret, and now request. At the end of chapter 63 and 64, Isaiah prays. He makes request of God. This is what prayer means. It means to ask. To trust in the Lord means in part to pray to him. We demonstrate our dependence on him when we pray. When we pray, we acknowledge that we cannot do things on our own. We can't live life on our own. We need Him. We can't work at our careers on our own. We need Him. We can't succeed in our marriages on our own. We need Him. We can't bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord on our own. We need Him. We cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit on our own. We need Him. We can do nothing on our own. Jesus says you can do nothing without me. We need him. Therefore, Isaiah prays. He asks God to look down from heaven and see his people. Like the psalmist, he prays, Where are your zeal and your might? Why are you holding your compassion from me? Neither Abraham or Israel, nor Israel, no, God is Israel's father. He's the psalmist's father. He's our father. He is their redeemer. He's our redeemer. Therefore, why do you make us wander from your ways, O Lord? That's what Isaiah asks. Actually, God is not making them wander from their ways. As Paul says in Romans, their unrepentant hearts have led them to the point wherein God has given them up to their own depravity. Like Pharaoh, God hardened his heart because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God's not picking on people. He's not arbitrarily hardening their hearts like a a marionette manipulates his puppets. No, God expects them to love him. He had given them everything, yet they worshipped idols and did not love him. So yes, because they turned from him, he let them stew in their own sinfulness. Therefore, because of the hardness of their hearts, God allowed their enemies to triumph over them. They became like those who were never ruled by God, like people who were not part of God's kingdom. They allowed the city and the temple to um, uh, to be destroyed because they turned those places into holy holdings. They were their places. Therefore, they are like people who have never prayed to God, and Isaiah desires for this to change. So, in 64, 8 through 11, which is parallel to 63, verse 16 through 19, Isaiah declares, But you, Lord, are our Father. Notice the relationship Isaiah claims. God, being the Father of his people, is not a New Testament revelation. Jesus expands the notion and defines it more clearly, but God has always been his people's father. Isaiah also acknowledges that God is like a potter. His people are the work of his hands. Do you catch the image of intimacy in those two descriptions? Father describes a parental relationship. 
Potter, on the other hand, implies an intimate knowledge of the clay being worked. It also pictures the potter's design for the clay with which he works. He knows how much water is needed to produce the type of clay with which he works. It reveals a plan for each pot. Therefore, the image indicates intricate design on the part of the potter. It also elicits the truth that God makes one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. That is his prerogative because he is the potter. Therefore, the image also reveals the sovereignty of the potter over the clay. Because of this, because of this, Isaiah pleads with God, Don't be so terribly angry and don't remember iniquity forever. In other words, Lord, please be merciful. Please notice that we are your people. Please notice how much destruction has taken place. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem has become a desolation. The holy temple where your people prayed has been burned with fire. I know Isaiah says praise, but the idea of praise and prayer are related concept because praise, praise is prayer. The Psalms make this clear. There are no more pleasant places. They have all become ruins. Why has all this happened? In one sense, it has happened because the people were no longer near to God. One reason they were no longer near to God was because they were not lamenting and praying. The laments in these two chapters are more like our own confessions of sin. We acknowledge what God has done for us, and we also confess our failure to I'll live up to it. But notice um, something in the last verse of chapter 64. Isaiah says, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict so terribly? If you turn that around and, and, and put it in a different way, Isaiah is saying, God, don't do that. Please, please don't do that. Don't turn your back on us. Don't restrain yourself from us. It's almost like Isaiah is saying, God, forgive us our trespasses um, and help us then to walk in the light as you are in the light. It's, it's a longing. It's a desire. Um, you are our Father, Lord God. We are the work of your hand. Um, remember not our iniquity forever. Please look, we are all your people. These are, these are the heart cries of Isaiah uh, for the people of Israel. So I want to suggest to you that one pattern of a church prayer service is to spend time in lament and prayer. I don't believe it, it the only biblical model. However, it is a model presented to us in these two chapters of Isaiah. So we have looked at three details, recount, regret, and request. Now I suggest to you that these represent one way to conduct a church prayer, prayer meeting. There is one more thing, however, I want to bring to your attention. Not everyone agrees with this. Calvin didn't. However, I want you to notice something and give it some thought. If you read carefully, you will notice that in 63.9, you have Isaiah talking about the one who redeemed Israel. 
In chapter 63, verses 1 to 4, you have the depiction of the anointed one. Actually, that's 62, 1 to 4. Um, well, 63, 1 to 4, you have the, it's a depiction of the anointed one coming from Edom with blood-stained garments. This image is picked up again in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and following, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 17 through 20, and in Revelation chapter 15. In Revelation, the, the, in Revelation, the reference is to Christ. Therefore, one older commentator, Dalich, um, I don't know if I pronounced his name right, Dalich, um, argued that the reference uh, in Isaiah is to the second person of the Trinity. As I said, Calvin didn't like that. The early church fathers held that view. Uh, he thought Christians needed to be a little more careful. Um, but be that as it may, as it may um, I agree that the second person of the Trinity is here in view. You will notice then that 63.10 mentions God's Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. In chapter 63, verse 16, we read that God is our Father. That's the first person, uh, person of the Trinity. I bring this up because in the days to come, and we gather together for the uh, gather together as a church for the purpose of prayer, we must always be reminded that we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must always be conscious of this because the God to whom we pray is one, yet three. When we think and pray to the one God, we must think of the Trinity. When we think and pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are praying to the one God. It's something that we need to develop a consciousness about. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks for all that you give to us. We pray that you would use the words of Isaiah to prick our conscience, that we too need to remember your redeeming work for us, and to lament our regret wherein we have failed to live in light of your loving goodness to us. And then help us to be people of prayer who come to you in confession and prayer and seek those things uh, that you seek. Help us to be people who seek the things which are above where Christ is, even when we pray. And Father, we ask you this in Christ's name. Amen.